Section 14 of Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. Chapter 14. The Finger of Scorn. It seems a marvel of mercy that the sins of earth are not visited on man with the instant castigation of heaven. And this seems a confirmation of the truth that this earth is not the place and state of final punishment or reward. The sun of another summer's day rose bright and unclouded over Vernwood, notwithstanding that there had fallen upon its beauteous domain the dark, dark shadow of so stupendous a crime. The mists of morning arose and dispersed from meadows and lawns, the fogs lifted from the broad, bright stream. Of course, the bad news flew from tongue to tongue, from house to house, from village to village, from man to man, with a speed which all our appliances for the captivation of electricity could hardly outstrip or excel. The day had scarce begun when women and men might be seen, with anxious, serious faces, hurrying from the many distant hamlets and villages and the outlying parts of the Vernwood domain, to learn the details of the horrible tale. There were laborers and rough miners, and at every house and every cottage door might be seen groups and knots of men and women, talking excitedly and seriously, with strained eager faces, in hurried and mysterious tones. The great pillar of the house had fallen, the hand was still in death, which afforded them and their little ones their daily bread. Then came also, soon from greater distances, small farmers and tradesmen riding up on rough country horses, or rough ponies, or in all sorts and conditions of vehicles on wheels, men who directly or indirectly had prospered under his rule and thriven on his bounty, all come to hear, to know, to learn for themselves the truth of the often repeated tale." Long before nine o'clock, there drove into the grounds the superintendent of the local constabulary, in a well-horsed and well-appointed trap, accompanied by some of his men, while other members of his force were soon seen arriving on foot from off their rural night beats, till by ten o'clock quite a crowd of people of all sorts and conditions and sexes, both young and old, of poor and rich, of rugged and refined, were scattered, some in groups, some singly, some in twos or threes, all over the grounds and lawns. All were discussing with the same alarmed and the same eager, terror-stricken air the facts of the terrible deed. And they asked each other, before all, whose was the hand that could have wrought so dark and so silent, so deadly a shedding of blood. Close before the door of that suite of apartments, leading on to the terrace, wherein the dead man lay, two tall constables kept jealous and constant guard, while before the darkened rooms, out on the lawn, attracted by that morbid, unhealthy craving for the contemplation of all the repulsive surroundings of crime, were drawn together a little knot of women, untidy, degraded, poverty-stricken, drink-besotten women, and bedraggled-looking children, the scum of the local humanity, if I may so say, seeking to sate their craving for the horrible by gazing at the outside walls behind which the poor mangled corpse lay. 
then came fussy local magistrates and magnates in more pretentious carriages, and some on stout cobs, all hungry and thirsty for details, scarcely less eager than their lower brothers and sisters, with that unhealthy appetite for the revolting minutiae of the deed. But most often of all, the most frequently asked question was, who in that short half-hour, during which Jules Massey said he was absent from his master's room, who could have perpetrated, committed, who could have carried out so complete a crime? The majority asserted that no human hand could have done it in that short half-hour when Jules Massey was away. Then came the logical inference that Jules Massey could not have been absent the whole of that fatal half-hour from his master's room. Where Jules Massey was during that half-hour, there was no one to tell. Could he have spoken, Monk could have told, but Monk had not a human tongue. Then again, why had Jules come at that hour of the night and dispatched David Blackman to Vernwood Village? David was the only male servant within reach, and yet Jules Massey had deliberately come, awoke him in the small hours of the morning, and sent him on an errand which the crowd said was a wild goose chase, and which would for an hour or two at least take him far away out of sight and sound. Such was the prevailing run of questions, and the pervading tone among the numerous motley assemblage, who had collected that bright morning to contemplate that dark sin. When the world takes upon itself to judge our actions, its verdict is arrived at in much the same style as a little boy does his sums of addition and subtraction when at school. A rough-and-ready cast, or a rough-and-ready deduction, is taken of our apparent acts, the result is hurriedly set down with but small examination of the factors of which it is composed. The sum may be far from right, but by this sum total of the world's opinion we are acquitted or condemned. On the darkened morning of his life of which we are writing, it was before such a rough and ready self-constituted court of common opinion as this that poor Jules Massey was being tried. But where was Jules Massey during all this time when his name and his fair fame were being bandied about like a shuttlecock from mouth to mouth, from man to man. Had he fled? No. Through all the hours of that long, wearying, dragging morning, poor Jules Massey remained in David Blackman's cottage, prostrate, stricken down, overwhelmed, overcome by the fearful shock which had felled him as if to the very earth, yea, into the very dust, and by the fearful shadow which seemed so threateningly to loom upon his life. For most of the time he lay prostrate on a bed, or sitting up, his head resting on his hands, he moaned deeply and piteously in the bitter anguish of his soul. David Blackman's better half, with the true feeling, the heart and true mission of woman in the world, whether towards the guilty or the innocent, whether towards the black man or the white, whether towards the flattered or despised, or bond or free, in solacing the afflicted and distressed, administered what consolation she could to the poor, rent spirit and broken, lacerated heart. It was in the midst of Mrs. Blackman's ministrations to poor Jules Massey that a knock came at the chalet door, and the good woman, on answering the summons, 
was startled to see standing before her, in his straight, peaked cap and uniform, the tall, dignified figure of the superintendent of the local police. Standing back out in the carriageway, at a little distance from him, was a sleek-looking, well, but quite plainly dressed individual, whom she did not know. "'You are Mrs. Blackman, I think?' asked the superintendent, addressing her very civilly. "'Yes, sir, I be,' Mrs. Blackman replied, dropping a slight, respectful curtsy at the tall, imposing presence of the officer in blue. "'Then, Mrs. Blackman, I should like to speak a few words with you, and close the door, please,' said the officer in the same civil, quiet, almost deferential tone. "'Will you kindly step outside?' Mrs. Blackman meekly and obediently did as she was told, and followed the tall superintendent, who, with his calm, leisurely, official stride, stepped out into the middle of the carriage road where stood the sleek, well-dressed man in plain clothes. "'I think, Mrs. Blackman, you live here, and sleep here. You slept here last night, is that not so?' "'Yes, sir, I do, I did.' And the black valet came here in the night, did he not, and called your husband up? Yes, sir, he did. It was somewhere about one or two o'clock this morning part. And you didn't get up then, Mrs. Blackman, when your husband was called, did you? No, sir. Leastways, I got up and struck a light, and when David come back and tells me as how he'd got to go to Vernwood Village, and went out, you see, sir, I gets into bed again. "'Yes, exactly so, Mrs. Blackman. "'And you were in bed until your husband returned?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Till then you didn't get up at all?' "'No, sir, I didn't get out of bed. "'Not till I heard David was come back, "'just afore I heard of this here dreadful affair.' "'And did you hear or see anything of the black valet "'after your husband had gone to Vernwood Village?' "'The tall officer asked. "'No, sir, by course I didn't.' "'Well, Mrs. Blackman, do you think you would have heard him "'if he had been near your cottage? "'Were you asleep or awake after your husband had left?' "'Well, sir, I really couldn't say, sir. "'I might have been dozing off again, "'for you see, sir, twere my washing day yesterday, "'and I went to bed that tired out, sir.' "'Yes, I see,' said Mr. Superintendent, "'thoughtfully and dryly. "'But look here now, Mrs. Blackman,' "'Supposing there had been anyone out with the dog, "'do you think you would have heard "'if there had been any unusual disturbance "'outside your bedroom window, "'for instance, where the dog was tethered?' "'Well, really, sir, I couldn't say for sure. "'By course the dog do very often move about "'and make a noise in the night, "'but we don't never take much notice of that. "'Why, there, only the other night, "'when David couldn't sleep, "'David says to me, "'I wish that great brute was farther away.' "'Very good, Mrs. Blackman. At any rate, you were not disturbed by any unusual sounds after your husband had left?' "'Well, really, sir, I couldn't say as how I was, for as I said, I were really that drowsy and tired, neither sleep nor awake-like, and I'd sooner for certain not say.' "'Thank you, Mrs. Blackman, that will do.' And with these words, and nodding to Mrs. Blackman with a kind smile of adieu, the tall superintendent, accompanied by the short, fat, sleek-looking person in plain clothes, conversing together, walked off down the drive. 
Mrs. Blackman drew a long sigh of relief as the two men walked away. Then she turned slowly round and walked slowly towards the door of the chalet. For a short minute before entering, she paused and was deep in thought. Poor, poor fellow! Poor fellow! She ejaculated to herself, and then she opened the door and went in. Jules Massey, who was too overwhelmed even to know that she had left the room, was sitting on a stool with his face buried in his hands, rocking himself to and fro, groaning aloud in the deep and bitter anguish of his soul. Mrs. Blackman went up to him, put her hand gently on his shoulder, and spoke comforting words. But the wound that had gone through Jules Massey's heart was a wound that only the slowly assuaging influence of forgetfulness, of oblivion, of time, and the long roll of years could heal. Reader, as you lightly peruse these pages, do you realize? Can you picture? Have you ever experienced the bald reality of the tale that is being told? As the grass that is mown, as the flowers that fade and wither, as the ears of corn in their ripeness and fullness of days are reaped and gathered in, so men and women fall around us day by day. But has it ever happened to you to be where the lurking phantom of assassination has raised its bloody hand, where the foul spirit of murder seems, though unseen, to haunt and defile the very air? If you have, it is then, then only, that you have learned and felt the loathsome presence of the fiend. Murder! Till we come near it, or till that comes near to us, we realize not how dark and heinous, how appalling is the crime. We read of it in the daily prints that come to our homes. There seems in the minds of some even a horrid fascination in the word. Even death, in his mildest, kindliest mood, is the king of terror in our eyes, the parting, perhaps forever, with those whom most we have learnt to revere and love. Even when we leave them for a month, for a week, for a day, nay, for an hour, we kiss and say goodbye. But when death comes, when we start the journey through that long, dark valley in which all the travellers are travelling alone, and travelling onwards along that dark road by which none return, even then the great mystery excites our profoundest awe. But when the ruthless hand of the assassin strikes to sever the mystic union of the body and soul, truly we are appalled. We give the deed the darkest place in our dark category of crime. We repay it by the extreme penalty that our laws can inflict, and we pronounce in fact, Hast thou shed man's blood? Then by man shall thy blood be shed. Thus upon the once bright home of Vernwood there had fallen the terrible shadow which dogs the assassin's trail. When Mr. Police Superintendent Whittier, the dignified officer who had questioned Mrs. David Blackman, left, with his short and sleek companion, the vicinity of the chalet, the two men walked down the carriage drive, and thence out onto the broad lawn in front of the mansion, over which were scattered and dotted about, here and there, men and women in little groups, all absorbed in the one topic of the terrible tragedy which had been played. A minute later, Superintendent Whittier and Mr. Briggs, which was his companion's name, 
were joined by one or two constables in uniform, and other rather important persons in plain clothes. Mr. Briggs was a retired local fellmonger, who, having acquired a competency in his own trade, had retired therefrom, and by some municipal maneuver or sleight of hand or sleight of head, got his name placed on the local commission of the peace. As is very common with such individualities, Mr. Briggs was an officious, fussy, busybody, ever seeking opportunity to bring his name into local repute. Thus, in the terrible tragedy of poor Bertram Gonneau's murder, he at once saw an opportunity for the display of his own importance and acumen, and for the general airing and exercise and showing off of his newly acquired magisterial abilities and honors. Such a man often makes himself a public nuisance to all well-conducted citizens of good taste. Of course, twere that black fellow did it, put in Mr. Briggs, rubbing his small fat hands. It's all very well to say that, said the local sergeant of police who was standing by, but what is there to prove it? Prove it? Why, circumstantial evidence, of course. Who else could have committed the crime? Do you mean to tell me, Sergeant Hicks, that that black fellow could have been hanging about there all that time, just when the murder must have been committed, and saw nobody go in or come out of that room, never saw a sight nor heard a sound of what was going on? Impossible! Of course he did it! And Mr. Briggs finished his argument with an air of incredulous contempt. Yes, Mr. Briggs, the black valet does not say he was at the place when the murder was perpetrated. He says he was up by the chalet, which is nearly a quarter of a mile away. Yes, he says he was up with the dog, and what proof is there that he was with or near that dog? Not one tittle, sir, not one tittle. And Mr. Briggs again rubbed his small fat hands on what he regarded on his part as quite a shrewd exposition of the law of evidence. Besides, sir, Briggs authoritatively resumed, if you have any evidence on that point, any evidence at all, it goes to prove that he was not near the dog, or near the chalet at all, or else, sir, is it conceivable that Mrs. Blackman could have heard nothing of him from her own room? Pooh! Perfectly absurd, sir, perfectly absurd. That black fellow did it, and ought to be arrested before he takes himself off. We will not follow this self-constituted council of local sages through their discussion, for the sequel will be shown by the result. It was a hastily improvised meeting, composed of a mixture of official blunder-headedness and local inexperience. The careers of those who constituted it were passed in the isolation of an English rural shire, and this was probably the solitary crime of its caliber which had come under their discretion in the whole course of their official and non-official lives. They had not been educated amidst the seething millions of great cities, where the seeds of intemperance and sensualism and vice, sown in the hotbed of iniquity, spring up into envy, hatred, and malice, and blossom forth every twenty-four hours into the baneful flowers of crime. However errant and wrong Superintendent Whittier might have been in his notions of his path of duty, however much at fault, his duty once made apparent to him 
the most exacting of his superiors could scarcely have accused him that he was imprompt in carrying that duty out. Scarce one hour had elapsed from the time when the tall officer held his short conversation with Mrs. David Blackman before the chalet, when, in the well-appointed trap provided for his use, Mr. Superintendent Whittier again drove up to the same spot, accompanied by one of his men. Superintendent Whittier alighted, knocked at Mrs. Blackman's door, and on that good woman answering the summons, the officer, without any invitation, walked in. The ground floor of the chalet consisted of one somewhat spacious apartment, which was Mrs. David Blackman's kitchen, parlor, pantry, and drawing-room all in one. In this apartment, poor Jules Massey was still sitting as we left him an hour before. The superintendent approached to where Jules sat, and producing an official-looking document, placing his hand on the black man's shoulder, read quickly through to him what was a warrant for Jules Massey's arrest on a charge of the willful murder of his master, Bertram Ganot. There was nothing harsh, nothing imperative, nothing unkind, in Mr. Superintendent Whittier's tone, but however much at fault in taking Jules Massey into custody he might be, he conceived that he had a duty to perform. By the time that the officer had finished reading his dire message, poor Jules seemed too dazed, too stunned and bewildered to comprehend or take in mentally either the words that were spoken or the circumstances of the case. Then, as a few minutes brought him to himself, he sobbed and sobbed and sobbed as if he had been a child, while Mrs. David Blackman, who was a witness of the painful scene, walked to the window, covering her face with her apron, was scarcely less overcome. But the tall, stern, calm, dignified, obdurate officer stood by apparently unmoved. Perhaps Superintendent Whittier's heart was hardened, perhaps it was rendered callous by the frequent scenes in which his duties led him to take a heartless and aggressive part. At last, as Jules seemed too stupefied to move, the superintendent took him gently by the arm, while with his other hand he placed Jules' hat, which lay near him, upon his head. Then, almost as if by main force, he raised him to his feet and supported him, for his head hung down and the dark figure tottered and reeled and staggered like a drunken man. Then, as he seemed almost utterly incapable of locomotion, the powerful officer almost carried bodily, rather than supported him, across the cottage floor out into the warm, bright sunlight of the summer morning, a sunlight indeed now so darkened, and under the shade of the tall, overhanging trees, where stood in waiting the superintendent's horse and trap and man. Arrived thus far with his charge, Mr. Superintendent Whittier was beginning to congratulate himself that he had made a very successful arrest, and in comparative privacy, for there was an entire absence of that accumulation of lounging loiterers often present at such scenes, debased natures who seemed to revel and gloat over the fall of a fellow man. But as Mr. Superintendent emerged from the cottage, almost carrying the helpless form, there was at least one attentive onlooker, there was one sagacious watcher of the unusual scene, 
whose keen eye and canine intelligence nothing escaped, for Monk, who was tethered near, with continuously rising ire and repeated deep-mouthed expressions of displeasure, noted every act and character of the lugubrious play. At last Monk evidently felt that this unusual treatment of his dark friend had gone too far to be longer endured, and with a yell of anger he tugged with all his great power at his restraining chain. It is a useful truth to know that in this world of imperfections almost every chain has its weakest link, and at that weakest link it may break. The chain which tethered Monk was no exception to this rule. The weak link parted and flew, and in the twinkling of an eye Monk was a free dog. The use which the canine monster made of his suddenly gained liberty, the sequel will show. There was a loud growl of rage, a huge bound, and the great dog, which stood when on his hind legs as tall as the officer himself, had his two forepaws nearly on the constable's shoulders, while the great teeth fastened savagely into the man's throat. Overcome by the suddenness and ferocity of the attack, and the great overbearing weight of the animal, the tall superintendent came violently to the ground, while the dog, which relinquished not for one moment the powerful grip of his jaws, which was a grip of the man's clothes rather than of his flesh, before any help could reach him, literally tore Superintendent Whittier's best uniform from his back almost into shreds of blue cloth. Superintendent Whittier's assistant constable, seeing that his superior officer was in imminent peril of his life, came with drawn truncheon to his superior's aid but the two men might as well have attempted to cope unarmed with an enraged lion, and what the earthly end of these two arms of the law would have been, but for the timely intervention of Mrs. David Blackman, is so plain that it is scarcely needful to relate. However, the woman finally succeeded in calming the outraged feelings of the dog, while in a sorrowful plight the superintendent, more denuded of his uniform than suffering from any corporeal injury, regained his feet, while Monk, as far as he could be understood, uttering all sorts of expressions of regret that he had not made shorter work of the superintendent and greater use of his short term of liberty, was, in the hands of good Mrs. Blackman, led off the scene. Left to his own devices, the horse in the superintendent's trap regarding the bellicose attitude of the various powers with apprehension, trotted off, but he being a more tractable beast than Monk was finally secured. Then, shaken, disconcerted, shorn, bereft of every vestige of the dignity of, as the immortal William Shakespeare would probably have expressed it, the divinity which hedged him in, Mr. Superintendent Whittier struggled painfully into his vehicle with his assistant and his charge, and the three drove away. End of section 14